Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Coming up on today's show, I'll be joined by Dr. Joel Zimberg to discuss what's what everybody's been talking about lately, the infectious disease spreading around the world that we're all calling the coronavirus. Uh, Dr. Zimberg is an associate clinical professor of surgery at the Mount Sinai Hospital here in New York, and he was until recently general counsel and senior economist at the Council of Economic Advisors, where he specialized in health policy. He's been a regular contributor to City Journal for several years now, and we're excited to have him on the podcast, uh, though I wish it were under better circumstances. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back with Joel Zinberg. Hello again, everyone. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me in the studio today is Dr. Joel Zimberg. He's an associate clinical professor of surgery at the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, and he's written a couple of dozen essays or pieces uh, for City Journal over the years. His most recent writings for us are about the coronavirus outbreak, so we're grateful that he could join us in the studio to give us some clarity about the current situation. Uh, uh, Joel, thanks again for joining us. You're very welcome. Uh, first, it seems that we're getting, of course, updates on this story uh, every hour or so. Uh, so uh, we're recording this, and listeners should understand this, on Tuesday, March 10th, and we'll be releasing the episode tomorrow on the 11th. Uh, what's your assessment of the latest situation with the virus outbreak, as you understand it, in the United States? So the the virus that you're referring to, this new coronavirus, uh, emanated from China back in December. Mm -hmm. uh, it's related to two other coronaviruses that previously had jumped from animals to humans. Those were SARS and MERS. Uh, and it seems to be a easily transmissible virus. It spread rapidly in China and now has spread to over 100 places around the world, including the United States. Uh, what we've found is that about 80% or more of the people who are infected with the virus have mild symptoms, but unfortunately there are people who do have severe symptoms, and uh, the illness that results, which is, is known as COVID-19, can actually result in a small number of cases in deaths. Uh, and that's particularly the case for a population of vulnerable individuals who are the elderly and people with underlying medical conditions like heart disease, lung disease, diabetes. So the problem, uh, both here and around the world, is how to limit the health effects of COVID-19. Uh, how do we mitigate the disruption to the healthcare system? And how do we mitigate the disruption to the economic system, both here and around the world? The good news is that uh, in China, where the original infections occurred, the rate of new infections is going down. The same is true in South Korea, which until recently was the second most uh, common site of infections. Their rate of infection is going down. The bad news is that in Italy and Iran, uh, the rate of infections is going up rapidly, and we're seeing a little bit of that in Western Europe as well, in France, Germany, and Spain. Uh, so the, the real question is how do we stop right. that spread? So the good news now, in this country at least, is that we have solved the problem of the testing kits. 
They are now much more available, so we can identify new cases, we can isolate them, we can utilize the various public health measures like quarantines, social distancing, isolation. People can utilize personal hygiene, and uh, hopefully that will greatly mitigate the impact that coronavirus has here. Now, um, to, to talk about the testing for a minute, uh, there's been a lot of confusion about the diagnostic testing question. The CDC received a lot of criticism uh, in the press last week for its slow rollout of the test kits, and now the FDA has announced it would allow private labs uh, to begin making their own tests for the disease, which seems a very good idea. Uh, could you explain a little bit about what happened there um, and um, you know, does it? What what role is testing really playing in the crisis going forward? If it's really spreading so fast, so testing is key because at the moment, uh, particularly in this country where testing has not been available, we really don't have a handle on how many people are actually infected. Uh, and to some extent, that's true around the world. Even in Korea, which has the most aggressive testing program and has tested over 100,000 people, you're talking about a population of. 50 million people. Mm -hmm. So you really don't know how many people have actually been infected. But the testing is key because it identifies the individuals who need to be isolated and you break that chain of transmission. So it's a little bit complex what happened here in this country and it has to do with some relatively arcane areas of FDA law. Uh, but basically the FDA has always asserted that it has jurisdiction uh, to regulate what are called laboratory-developed tests. These are tests developed in private laboratories to be used in the private laboratories for a variety of, of testing mm -hmm. purposes, uh, except that the FDA have, has exercised what they call enforcement discretion, and they almost never would regulate those, those tests. Uh, and in this instance, when the public health emergency was declared by Secretary Azar, the FDA decided it was going to exercise discretion, and it initially limited the availability of tests uh, for uh, COVID-19 to the CDC-developed test. And the problem was that that CDC-developed test had some difficulties with the reagents that made it an unreliable test. So even though those were distributed around the country, they could not be used. Um, the good news, of course, now is that, as you pointed out, uh, the FDA has relented. It's opened this up to private manufacturers. It's opened it up to private laboratories. Uh, and the FDA and CDC report that they've shipped over a million test kits around the country, uh, both to public and private laboratories, and millions more are on the way. And private uh, labs are also developing tests. So we can expect the numbers of people being tested to start growing very rapidly. We can expect the number of people being tested to grow rapidly, and probably you can expect the number of people who are counted as confirmed cases mm -hmm. to grow rapidly. And that, that could reflect two things. It could reflect that the actual numbers of people being infected are growing, and it could also just reflect that you are finding the people who are already infected. Right. Um, you know, the, the situation in Italy seems very... Um, very grave. You've had uh, basically a lockdown, a movement throughout the country. And um, my sense of that, and I'm no expert, is that it's, it's really been a kind of denial of service attack on the hospitals, that, that uh, emergency rooms got overwhelmed and uh, that that's, that's quickly gotten out of control. Uh, what is your sense about um, 
the, the situation there? And are we in for the same kind of uh, overwhelming of our, our hospitals in the United States? So the, the situation in Italy, to some extent, is mimicking what happened in China, where uh, hospitals were overwhelmed. Uh, in addition, uh, hospitals were unprepared to take various infection control measures so that some of the people who uh, were infected first were hospital and medical personnel. So you had sort of a two-pronged attack. You had an overwhelming demand for medical services, and then you had a decrease in the supply of people able to provide it. Uh, that, to some extent, has happened in Italy, uh, but I think Italy is more just a question of overwhelming demand uh, and hospitals that were not prepared to take care of those patients. And what I mean by prepared is they weren't prepared to have isolation facilities so that these patients would have a place to go where they wouldn't infect other people. They weren't prepared in that uh, what are called universal precautions were taken with everyone, so people were exposed. Uh, and as a result, you, you have a system that's sort of teetering on the edge in Italy. The, um, and your sense of hospitals here in the United States, we've had at least time to be thinking about this, and presumably they're taking aggressive steps to address some of these issues. Some more than others. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the, one of the hot spots in this country is a nursing home uh, near Seattle in, in Washington State, uh, and that's an, an, a good example of where precautions were not taken. Mm -hmm. So that is, th those are people who are in the vulnerable population I referred to before. They're elderly, they have a lot of underlying medical problems, and they weren't isolated from one another. So as a result, you have a, a lot of people infected in this one spot, and you have a lot of deaths, unfortunately, uh, in that one spot. But hospitals are increasingly start taking uh, action to, to prepare for what we hope is not an onslaught of these patients, but they are taking actions. And one thing that I have suggested is that, uh, that we be prepared to advise people to stay at home when they're ill, and we, that we provide the resources that local public health authorities can actually go and screen people who are in the more severe category at home, mm -hmm. uh, and if they find that they are indeed infected and, and need medical attention, they can alert the transportation people, the ambulance crews, the emergency rooms, so that they know in advance this is a likely COVID-19 patient. They can take precautions. Uh, and in addition, hospitals should are starting to try to find ways to screen patients in advance of exposing them to everyone else sitting in the waiting room. Right. Um, one question that seems uh, very important, but also I've seen a lot of different answers to, is what the fatality rate is of the new virus. Uh, what is your best sense of that right now, according to the evidence? The evidence, unfortunately, is a moving target. Uh, we do know that there are, as I mentioned earlier, these vulnerable populations, uh, and far and away, uh, they are the people who are going to suffer severe illness and death. So the most recent study out of China, and this was of hospitalized patients, was that there was a 1.4% case fatality rate. And, and this was beyond uh, Hubei province? Was this all of China? Well, this was, they had studied, they had a big database, but then they actually narrowed it down to, it was primarily in Hubei province. Okay. Um, 
so, but that is clearly too high. We know it's too high. We know it from the Korean uh, experience where they have done the most extensive testing in the world that they have a 0.7% fatality rate. And even that is likely high because they cannot test all of the 50 million people in, in mm -hmm. Korea. Uh, and even though they've tested more than anyone else in the world, uh, they've tested over 100,000 people, they undoubtedly are missing the many people, uh, really the majority of people who have COVID-19 illness who have mild symptoms. So there's probably a, a real undercount there, which means when you start to get over time a more accurate count, the denominator in your case fatality rate goes up, meaning your case fatality rate goes down. And this is the sort of commonly what happens in an epidemic situation. So for example, the swine flu uh, that hit, pandemic that hit in 2009, the initial case fatality rate estimates were over 1%. But as time went on and the dust settled, it turned out that you ended up having a case fatality rate of 0.02%. So that's what I expect is going to happen here. And, and actually, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, in a New England Journal article recently, said he expects it's going to decline. It may decline as much uh, as down to 0.1%, which is what we typically see in the seasonal flu. Um, you know, there's been a lot of comparisons uh, with the flu, um, which we tend to just take for granted. Uh, which we probably shouldn't, I, I guess many of the things that we would do to prepare for, you know, or to fight uh, the, the, this virus also would work against uh, flu infection, you know, keeping your distance, washing your hands. But what is your sense of the, the um, comparisons that are being made uh, between those two things? Well, yeah, as you know, the president has uh, made that comparison uh, and suggested that the influenza, commonly known as the flu, has been the more serious problem. And basically, he's right. I mean, at the Council of Economic Advisors, we issued a report this past fall uh, talking about the potential medical and economic impact, both of what's called seasonal flu and possible pandemic flu. And just to digress a little bit, I mean, Influenza is a different virus than coronavirus, mm -hmm. but it's a virus that's endemic. It's, it's around the world constantly. Uh, every year it mutates a little bit so that uh, there's a new flu season. We prepare a vaccine. And then every, and, and every once in a while it mutates a lot. So you have a relatively new virus that can spread easily and has more severe side effects. Uh, and that's when we call a pandemic. That's happened four times in, in the last century. Uh, so, you know, probability of about uh, 4%. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. So uh, that, those two circumstances, both the seasonal flu and pandemic flu, we know infects millions of people every year in this country. We know it can kill up to 50,000 or more people a year in this country. Uh, we know it, uh, over 360,000 people get hospitalized every year. And, and you have deaths including children. So for example, this year with the flu, uh, there have already been about 34 million people who've been sickened. Uh, about 20,000 people or more have died. Uh, 350,000 people have been hospitalized. So. It, to put it in the context of the, the coronavirus, it's a more uh, pressing problem. Some of the same things uh, that 
uh, are being done for coronavirus would be effective with the flu. And, but the, the flu, you have one big advantage that you don't have with coronavirus is that there's a vaccine prepared every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that, uh, that takes into account those small changes from year to year that I refer to. Uh, and the major problem we have is that less than half the people in the country actually get vaccinated. So it, you have the peculiar circumstance that there's a near panic about coronavirus, uh, yet for something that we know can be a far more deadly disease, people are not availing themselves of a, a, the best preventive measure there is. One of uh, the very important pieces you did for us now a couple of weeks ago when this was just getting underway um, noted that the uh, coronavirus is uh, not only going to hurt people directly, but indirectly through potentially reducing our supply of basic pharmaceuticals and medical supplies, you know, ranging from antibiotics to uh, gloves and masks, things like that. Um, And that this has a lot to do with a a certain kind of dependency that's emerged on uh, the Chinese uh, market and India. So could you explain a little bit what the problem is there and how severe it is? So this is really part of the globalization of the supply chain. Uh, It's not confined to pharmaceutical products, uh, but it is particularly important when we deal with pharmaceutical products. Uh, So what people don't realize is that when you have a drug, even if it says it's made in the United States, the various chemical components that go into that drug, things that are called the active pharmaceutical ingredients, APIs, those may be manufactured elsewhere. Uh, And overwhelmingly over the last few years, we've had a shift in the manufacture of these APIs as well as some of the finished drugs overseas, particularly to China and to India. So for example, generic drugs, which now encompass 90% of the drugs that we utilize, are overwhelmingly made overseas. And even though India, which is a bigger producer than China, they rely for 80% of their APIs uh, on China. So the problem is when you have a a disruption of production in a country like China because of this natural catastrophe, this coronavirus spread, it raises concern that this will interfere with the supply chain and deprive us of medicines. It also raises the obvious national security concern that uh, in times of uh, international strife, a foreign country could also decide to cut off uh, the supply. So thus far, the FDA has only reported one drug shortage based on disruption of API production in China. But there have been reports uh, from the World Health Organization and others uh, of uh, global disruptions of what are called personal protective equipment, the things like masks and gloves. And that's partly because they're in high demand and people are buying them up. And it's also because of the supply problems that the Chinese production has been disrupted. The other aspect that I did raise in my article was that uh, this also creates a problem with quality because there are already have been quality concerns over overseas production, and, and it's difficult for the FDA to inspect and regulate the folks overseas. And now because of various travel restrictions, the FDA has suspended inspections of Chinese drug and device factories. What do you do to address this problem? Um, you know, it does seem to have a very profound national security implication um, um, and in a 
crisis like this, you, you would want access and availability to these, these kind of crucial pieces of equipment and, uh, and drug components. Well, that's, it's, a, it's an important question that the administration, I know, is actively considering at the moment. And you can consider the, uh, in the jargon that surrounds this area is what are called push and pull incentives. You can do something to increase uh, the production here, increase the supply. Uh, by encouraging manufacturers to start uh, producing these APIs and drugs here. Or you can do what, what's called a pull, where you raise the prices, and that should, try, that should stimulate production here. It's not clear yet what's going to be pursued or, or what's the best uh, mechanism to do that. And there's really no short-term fix. We're unfortunately in the short term dependent on these foreign suppliers. Uh, and I might add that you know, there's the, an interesting tension here between uh, our concern with the high price of drugs, which has pushed us to use generic drugs, mm -hmm. which are cheaper, uh, and this administration and, and the FDA uh, has really pushed generic approvals very strongly so that we have now record numbers of generic approvals, and it's very clear when the more generics on the market, the prices go down. But on the other hand, one of the ways that that's been accomplished is by shipping these right. overseas to cheaper production. So we have a, a tension between the, these concerns about supply and, and our goal of trying to lower drug prices. You have a background in economics as well. What's your sense of what the um, range of economic uh, scenarios are coming out of this? Uh, that, that unfortunately is at the moment an area of speculation right. because uh, it, it's unclear how much the Chinese economy has been disrupted. We know it's been disrupted, but we also know that it, it came on the heels of a period in which Chinese factories are normally idled because of the Lunar New Year. So it's, it's unclear how much disruption has occurred uh, and how quickly the Chinese will be able to make up those supply disruptions. Uh, we do know, obviously, uh, that the stock market is fearing uncertainty, and that's reflected in the large drops in, in values that we've seen on the stock market. So, you know, I think most people are predicting that at least for this quarter, we will, have, we will lose some GDP growth, but hopefully that we will rebound uh, in the following quarter. Thanks very much. Don't forget to check out Joel Zimberg's work on our website, www.city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page and his recent writings in the podcast description. You can follow City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And as always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please leave us a rating on iTunes. Uh, thanks for listening, and thanks very much, Dr. Zimberg, for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.